pop quiz last week. What was it that God gave to Adam, gave to the man? Work. Did he give him work as a curse? No. The personal Yahweh Elohim, the personal covenant-keeping God, gave to the man work so that the man could participate and share in the work that was already begun in the creation by God. It was a spiritual act of service, just like all of our work is ultimately a spiritual act of service. We said last week that we were going to look at two things going on in chapter 2, that God gives to the man work and that God gives to the man a wife. The wife is what we're doing today. So Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, At last, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, help us to see in the creation of marriage something about your majesty and your goodness and kindness to us and ultimately help us to see how marriage points us to the gospel and the ultimate hope that we're moving towards. And it's in the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. A uh, couple disclaimers right up front. Uh, I know that we have uh, minors, <clears throat> young minors in here. We're talking about marriage. And if you'll notice, especially at the end of the chapter, we're talking about uh, man and woman not being ashamed, right? So my disclaimer is those things we're not going to avoid, but I'm going to do my level best not to say anything that's going to put any of you parents of young kids in an awkward position, right? Like, Daddy, what does mean? I'm going to try not to do that, but I'm not perfect, so cut me some slack. Number two, this is not so much a disclaimer as much as it is uh, a word of encouragement. If you are here in the sanctuary this morning and you are single, do not tune out simply because we're talking about marriage. You need to hear this. 
If you are here and you are married, do not tune out. (laughs) You need to hear this. And I would even go on the other side of that and say, if you are here as a widow or widower, do not tune out because you need to hear this. This is the word of the Lord. This is the way that God ordered his creation from the beginning before it had been marred by sin and disobedience. And it is a good thing that God has done in creating marriage. And we want to be able to celebrate that and not only celebrate what God has done in marriage, but to see what the ultimate purpose and meaning behind marriage is. So, Let me try to get out there, just so that we don't get lost in any of the details, what I hope to communicate to you through the time that we have in the Word this morning. Just as an overall idea, if I just one statement that kind of controls everything, I want to try to persuade you and convince you that anytime we see marriage or anytime we enter into marriage, ultimately we are married for God. We are married for God. And then that's going to work its way out from this passage in in two primary points. Number one, that we are married to serve God. This sort of ties us back into the work aspect that we saw last week. We are married to serve God. And then number two, we are married to see God. And this is where if you're married, you don't want to tune out because you're like, I'm married to see God. Have you seen my, right? We'll get there. We are married for God. We're married to serve God and we're married to see God. So, pick up with me back at verse 18, Genesis 2, 18. Most of the time that you hear marriage being discussed or talked, especially in Christian circles, whether it's in a Bible study or a marriage seminar or something like that, If you're talking about the very beginning, the the foundation of marriage, Genesis 2.18 is one of the the dominant or favorite uh, verses that are used. And there we read that the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. You're just going to have to tune that out. (laughs) Or maybe we just crank the volume up until your ears start to bleed. Okay. Tune it out as best you can. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Most of the time that we read that verse or we hear someone talk about it, it's discussed as Adam is alone, parenthetically, lonely. God looks at Adam. Oh, poor, poor Adam. He's there and he doesn't have a friend. He doesn't have anyone to talk to. He doesn't have anyone to laugh with or to share with. It's not good for the man to be lonely. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so the idea then is worked out that the reason that God creates woman to give to the man is to solve the issue of loneliness, of companionship. But contextually, this just doesn't seem to be the overall thrust or the flow of the passage. And, and let, me, let me show you and, and work you through why that is, why the, the helper that Adam needs is not first and foremost a helper for 
companionship, to safeguard against loneliness. In chapter 1, when we had the, the, the broad sort of 30,000-foot view of God's creation work, we're told that He creates man and woman and that He gives them the charge to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion and to rule over the earth. In other words, He creates them to be His image bearers, His representatives in this created order, and then He gives them a mission or a task to accomplish that is multifaceted, multiplying, ruling, so on and so forth. When we come to chapter 2 and when we sort of go from 30,000 feet to more of the treetop level to, to look a little bit more closely at how God uniquely creates man and woman and places them in their original setting in Eden in the garden, we're told a couple things. We're told, for example, in verse 5, 2, 5, that no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and... There was no man to cultivate the ground. In order for creation to really thrive, man was needed to do the work, do the tending, do the caring. We're told in verse 15 that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Again, we're back to vocation, to the fact that the man has been given a job, has been given a mission to do. And then it's within this flow of thought... God charging mankind with a vocation, be fruitful, multiply, rule and have dominion, places them in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it, that we come down to verse 18 and we're told it's not good for the man to be alone, I'll make a helper suitable for him. All that to say this, helper here, if we're tracking with the flow of the story, is not a helper for the sake of companionship, it is a helper for the sake of work. Adam needs a helper because Adam's primary call and purpose in life is to serve the creation in obedience to the Creator. And in light of the task that has been given to Adam to be fruitful and multiply and to rule and have dominion, God sees Adam on his own and says it's not good for him to be alone because he will not be able to accomplish the task that has been given to him. Therefore, I will make a helper that suits him. So right now, romance goes out the window. No long walks on the beach. No staring longingly into each other's eyes. The reason that God created marriage is because there was work that needed to be done. But remember that work that's given to the man in chapter 2 is given to man as a blessing. It's given to man as an opportunity for him to be able to relate to the Creator in a more profound and lasting way so that now 
if a woman is being given to the man so that he can fulfill his calling or his task, it must be that man and woman doing work together is itself going to be a blessing because they will share together in the work that God has given them to do. So creating a helper for Adam so that he can fulfill the mission and the calling of of mankind is not a consolation prize. It's not just merely looking at the situation and saying, you know what, Adam's got too much time on his hands. We've got to give him something to keep him busy. Let's give him a wife. This is another way that God, remember, Yahweh God, a personal God, steps into his creation and, his, and with his image bearer and gives him a gift in the form of a woman that will enhance his ability and also the woman's ability to fully realize and recognize the intention and the goals with which God has placed them in the creation. With that then, this might be another way that we should look at the differences between men and women and say, oh, well, it's no wonder then that men and women are so different. Because the help that Adam needs is not the kind of help that is going to be identical to the work that he himself will do, right? In other words, if all the work that needed to be done was just uh, manual grunt labor, right? Moving heavy boulders or wrestling animals. What does this look like in Eden? I have no idea. But if all the work was, was a matter of brute strength, another man would have been much more preferable and effective a helper for Adam than to get a woman who's not going to have the amount of physical brute strength that the man is going to have. For that matter, If all that Adam needed in his aloneness was companionship, God could have created dozens of people on the spot and given Adam a a ready-made small group, no more loneliness. But it's when you begin to see that man and woman complement each other physically, emotionally, psychologically, all those things, and you begin to see what it is that mankind has been charged to do that you begin to say, oh, yes, it it did need to be a woman. For example, it is one thing for Adam to go forth and to rule and have dominion over the physical creation. Conceivably, Adam might be able to do that in small ways himself, except he's going to come to realize that the creation is far too big for him to to do that. There's going to need to be more people. In other words, he's going to need to multiply. How is Adam going to multiply? Got to have a woman. And as Adam goes out and as he begins to rule and have dominion and as he begins to push the boundaries out where he's bringing order into this wild, untamed creation... Who then is going to come along with him and sort of fill and order and design these things in such a way that it is not only conquered but livable? You ever been to a single guy's apartment? 
You ever looked at the walls? Nine times out of ten, if you go to a single guy's apartment, the walls are empty and bare. And he's fine with that. You throw a woman into the picture, all of a sudden the walls are not empty and bare. This domain that he has secured now has a woman, a wife who enters into the picture, and the woman sets about filling and ordering this space that has been secured and carved out. I think that's something like what goes on with man and woman. They have unique responsibilities in the unique way that God has created them, and the two of them working together are going to be able to do far more in their fruitfulness and in their ruling and dominion than any one of them could do on their own. Recognizing then that we are married to serve God is one of the ways that we are protected from selfishness and idolatry in marriage, right? Most of the time, and this is rampant in popular culture, but it seeped into the church as well. Most of the time when you hear marriage being discussed, it's all about finding your significant other or finding the person who completes me or finding my best friend or finding someone that I can share my life with, right? That sort of thing. Do you, if you stop and if you take notice of what's being said, almost everything that's being said is about what this marriage is going to do for me. And because I begin to view marriage as a gift for me, how is marriage going to serve me? When I enter into marriage, I have certain expectations that I place on my wife because the reason that I'm married is so that my wife can serve me. That's what marriage is for. My wife, on the other hand, is thinking the exact same thing, and she's thinking the reason that I got married is because this is meaningful and this completes me and fulfills me. Therefore, what my husband is supposed to be doing is serving me. How's that working out for you? But from the very beginning, we see that marriage was not created so that the man would have someone to serve him or so that the woman would have someone to serve her, but marriage was created so that two people could serve God. That's what your marriage ultimately is about. Or, if you are contemplating marriage or aspiring to be married, that's what your marriage ought to be about. Recognizing that from the very beginning, God put a man and a woman together so that they could be fruitful and multiply. You know what that means? That means kids, children. God put man and woman together so that they could rule and have dominion and bring order and beauty to a wild, untapped, untamed world. Man and woman together do that sort of thing in any number of different ways. But that's the point. They're being brought together to serve God, not first and foremost to serve themselves. That also then, on the one hand... It guards me against selfishness, where marriage is all about me, 
and serving my needs, and it turns me and my spouse outwards to say, no, our marriage is to serve God, to love Him, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. How do we do that as a married couple, right? It, it guards, it, it's a, uh, a preventative means against selfishness. It also guards me against idolatry. It guards me against thinking that marriage is the end-all, be-all of human existence, that only in marriage am I able to find ultimate meaning and significance. Only in marriage am I going to be able to find contentment and joy and satisfaction. If you're here and you're single, let me let you in on a little secret. Marriage is not going to make you perfectly content. Marriage is not going to make you perpetually joyful. Marriage is not going to make you perfectly at rest. Do not make the mistake of idolizing marriage. And husband and wife, do not turn your marriage into an idol so that if that marriage begins to suffer or crumble or fall for any number of reasons, whether it's death, whether it's a breakdown in the relationship, if your marriage is your God, when your God is taken away, you have nothing. Marriage was not given to us to be an idol. Marriage was not given to us to be a God, to be what we turn to to find significance and meaning, and joy in life. It was given to us so that we would find our meaning and significance in God as we serve Him together. Number two, that was number one, we're married to serve God. Number two, no, I'm sorry, let me back up. Right, Because some of you are wanting to know, well, if we're married to serve God, does that mean then that we shouldn't care about things like romance and love? And I tell my wife all the time, that's exactly right. Don't expect anything. <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. Right? To, to say that marriage is created so that we can serve God together in ways that we could not serve Him on our own is not to say that things like mutual love and respect, romance, laughter, joy, happiness, it's not to say that those things are not important. What we ought to do, though, is we ought to rightly order those things so that we're not taking secondary issues and making them primary. In other words, it is a mark of God's goodness and kindness that when He brings a woman to Adam, He has made something so good and so enjoyable for Adam that it will not only meet the goal and the purpose, i.e. serving God effectively, but because God is so abundantly good and generous, He gives to Adam, He gives to the man a woman who is uniquely created for Him in such a way that He can delight in her, right? In other words, God could have created the marriage relationship in such a way that it's merely contractual. 
we say I do, and then you get your tools, I get mine, and we go out and we start doing the work, and I'll see you at the end of the day after we clock out. But the fact that God creates man and woman with the ability to relate to each other in very unique and deeply personal ways is itself an indication that God does not mean for our work together to be burdensome or filled with toil and lack of joy, but that the ideal is that husband and wife, man and woman working together are able to do so with joy and excitement and with a sense of adventure as they go out together to do the things that God has set before them. So romance is good, but romance is only as good as it continues to fuel your ability to move forward together in serving the Lord. Love and affection is good. Physical intimacy is good. But it is good precisely to the end that it serves as a way to rest and rejuvenate and get ready for getting up the next day and setting about the work that God has set before you. So, men, am I saying that because marriage is given to us as a means to serve God, am I saying that romance and loving your wife and giving her flowers is not important? Okay, you want to be shaking your head no. No, I'm not saying that. Women, am I saying that the way that you relate to your husband and show him respect and honor and the way that you uh, move in harmony and unison together, am I saying that that's not important? No, certainly not. Those things, though, serve the greater goal of working for and serving God in His creation. We marry to serve God. Now we go to point number two. Not only do we marry to serve God, we marry to see God. Marriage is given to us so that we can see God. Ultimately, we would say, in the gospel. It cannot be accidental that the Bible opens and closes with marriage. That's what you have in Genesis 2. Hold your place in Genesis 2 and go to Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse 7 with me. As Revelation begins to reach its climactic conclusion... You have these significant statements being made. Revelation 19, 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. You want, you want to know what it's going to be like, something of what it's going to be like at the end when Christ returns to make everything right? It's going to be like a wedding. It's going to be like marriage. Turn a couple pages over to chapter 22, verse 17. 
the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost come. Do you hear that? Revelation 19, if you want to know something about what it's going to be like when Christ returns, you need to think about the glory and the joy and excitement that we associate with marriage. If you want to articulate or be able to give some sort of an analogy or illustration as to what it means to long for Christ, the analogy that Scripture gives us is the longing that a bride has for her husband. And then all the way through the rest of the Bible, you have scattered in numerous ways all of these illustrations to marriage and to weddings and to husbands and wives. You don't need to turn there, but let me just read a handful of them to you. Psalm 45, 10 through 11. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty. Psalm 45 is a wedding psalm. Isaiah 62, 5, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Ezekiel 16, 32, you adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Hosea 1, 2, go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. Matthew 9.15, Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? And then Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you hear that? Both in positive ways and in negative ways, the way that Scripture, the way that God himself continually comes back to demonstrate or illustrate, or give us some way to grasp the relationship that He has with His people is to use the institution of marriage. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. There are numerous ways that marriage gives us a picture of the gospel. Let me give you one briefly before we look at Ephesians 5. In the Genesis account in chapter 2, God makes a woman for Adam, and then He comes and He gives to Adam, His image bearer, this bride. That in some way is very like what God does in creating a bride for His Son, Jesus Christ. Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the second Adam, is given a bride that He can enjoy and that He can commune with for all eternity in a much greater way than what Adam and Eve would enjoy or than what any of us would enjoy in our marriages. But look at Ephesians 5, and look at what Paul does. 
525, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Paul's right there. What does Adam say? What does the man say when the woman is presented to him? Ah, now this is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. This is my body, in other words, Adam is saying when he lays eyes on the woman for the first time. What does Paul say in Ephesians 5? Paul says in a similar way but greater way, this welcoming of the woman to the man as bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh is a shadow of the reality of us being made the body and bones and body of Christ himself. But then Paul goes a little bit further. Look at verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. People pause right there for a second. Of all the things that Paul could have done to give an analogy of Christ and the church, why does he quote from this very last part of Genesis 2? A better way to say it might be this way. When it says in Genesis that a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, you don't need to blurt it out. Again, we've got young ones here. What does one flesh refer to? Okay, yeah, that good way to say it. Physical union, physical unity. Paul could have said something like, the two will become one mind, the two will become one spirit, the two will become one heart. But he doesn't. He's very happy to go back and to say... From Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery. You're like, yeah, there are a lot of mysterious things about marriage, Paul. Tell me about it. But then Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm not talking about the mystery of human marriage. I'm talking about the mystery of Christ being united to the church. Here's what I think is is going on. I think what Paul is alluding to here that we cannot see in Genesis 2 on its own. I think what Paul is indicating is that everything in marriage is ultimately pointing us to our relationship and our union with Christ, even down to the physical uniting that happens in marriage itself. Our bodies were made a man to fit with a woman. And the reason that God did that was so that he could show, he could stamp on the very bodies that we walk around in, that he could stamp on our persons the reality of the fact that you have been made to be a gift to someone else. You were made 
for another. Right? Our anatomical differences don't make sense unless it's in the coming together. Can we all agree on that? That being said, the fact that I am different from my wife and that that even physical difference is uniquely made for us to be joined together is itself what Paul draws on to say, and this physical union, this coming together and becoming one flesh, this deep communing of husband and wife, that is a mysterious sign that points to a greater union, a greater drawing together and being put together with Christ. Because everything in marriage ultimately points to our union with Christ. That means that marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is not the end-all, be-all of our existence. That means... That marriage is being given to us as a working illustration of the greater reality that is ours in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That means that even the physical desires that we have, if we can say it that way, for physical union coming together, right? That draw, that attraction, that pull. Single people, listen to me. Those impulses that you have to be with a girl or be with a guy, those are not evil, sinful impulses that suddenly become holy when you're married, right? Husband and wife, you, the physical impulses, the, the natural desires that you have to come together to be with your spouse, that is a good and holy and right thing. That is something that God created, and He created us with those kinds of bodily desires as a way to remind us over and over again in the very basic core of our existence, what you want is to find union with another person that's going to provide you with joy and happiness. Every time you feel the pull of physical attraction, that is marked with God's wisdom as a way to say that drawing out is what it means to be drawn out by me to find joy and satisfaction in union with me. That means then... That because marriage is not ultimate, but that ultimately marriage is pointing us to union with Christ in the gospel, that we are no better if we are married, and we are no worse if we are single. Just as a side note, Jesus was single. He was the most complete, perfect, satisfied man that has ever walked the earth, and he was never married. If you are married, 
your marriage is pointing to the promise of the gospel, which is that one day you and I will be joined to our Lord and Savior in intimate ways that we cannot possibly begin to imagine, that we will be filled with joy and delight, that we will be satisfied, that we will be known in ways that we cannot even begin to explain right now. Marriage is a sign of the promise of the gospel. If you're single, marriage is your, what marriage, your lack of marriage, your singleness is a sign of the fulfillment of the gospel. Because ultimately, every single marriage that exists is moving towards what we would now call singleness. Isn't that what Jesus said? In the resurrection, they'll be like the angels. They'll neither neither marry nor be given in marriage. Why is that? Well, because by the time we are with Christ, marriage will have served its purpose, and we will have something better in its place. Marriage is getting us ready for the marriage of the Lamb to His bride. That's what my marriage should be reminding me of, and that's what singleness should also remind us of, that there's coming a time in which we will all be single because we will be united only to Christ Himself, and we will be fully satisfied and delighted in that. Let me encourage you then, Christians especially, marriage has tremendous significance to our life and witness as followers of Jesus Christ. It has tremendous significance because of the fact that God Himself created it, gave marriage to us as a good gift to be enjoyed, as a means by which we could more effectively serve Him or serve Him in avenues or ways that we couldn't before. And our marriages need to be seen by a world that does not know how to sustain marriage, let alone what marriage is even for. The world should be able to look or needs to look at the marriages of followers of Christ and say, I don't know if I can explain it perfectly, but there seems to be something bigger than just the two of them together that keeps them going. They're not always turned in on each other, separating themselves from the rest of the world. They actually do things together to love those around them. They seem to take their marriage very seriously, and yet it doesn't appear to be the most important thing to them. And yet this wife, knowing that she's not the most important thing to her husband, she's okay with that. And this husband, knowing that he's not the most important thing to his wife, he's okay with that. What gives? And we, above all people, should be those who recognize that for all the good that marriage is, marriage is just a shadow. It is not permanent. It will not last forever. Make the most of it. 
but make the most of your marriage recognizing that the reason, if you happen to be married, that the reason that you are married is because God is intending to use your marriage to open your eyes to see the greater promises that are available to you and waiting for you in your union with Christ. Your spouse is not going to be able to give you what it is that your heart most desperately wants. And if you're a follower of Christ and you are single, you need to move through confidently in life, recognizing that you are not a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God any more than Jesus himself was or Paul was. But you're just simply walking through life joyfully, waiting to see what it is that God is going to give you, whether it be marriage or not, and saying that whether I enter into that relationship or not, I know that ultimately all of that was supposed to point me towards my union with Christ, and I can begin to enjoy that right now. You don't need marriage for that. But this ultimately is what all of history is moving towards. The father creating a bride to give to his son so that they can enjoy life together forever without interruption. And we're moving towards it. Let's pray. Father, how good and how gracious and wise you are to give us marriage as a way to draw us to yourself. Forgive us for thinking that marriage is ultimately about us, uh, that it uh, ought to become uh, the source of our happiness and contentment in life, that it can provide us with some sense of completion or fulfillment or meaning. There is no meaning or satisfaction apart from you. Thank you that you give us the ability to even now begin to imagine and wrestle with unimaginable joy through the illustration and the analogy of marriage. That the ideal that we see in Scripture is meant to be a signpost that points us to what will not just be an ideal but a reality when we finally in, enter into a new creation and union with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May our marriages reflect that. That marriage is a gift, and that more than a gift, we desire the giver. May our singleness represent that we understand that Christ is greater than any human relationship, and that there's coming a day and time when all these things will pass away except for the union with Christ in this church. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand as we close out our service uh, in a unique way as we just uh, send, send us out uh, and we cry out, Be thou my vision, Lord, as we go and do the work, just as uh, Jonathan has uh, boldly preached this morning. So. Let's proclaim, be thou my vision um, today. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart.
not be all else to me save that thou art thou my best all by day or by night waking or sleeping thy presence my Thank you for this day. We pray that we would be sent out and that we would tune our eyes to you as we close out with this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.